for the most part, we are designing beautiful things for rich people. And I think that poses some real questions and real problems for us as we think about if and how we might try to align ourselves with what is a radically redistributive program if we take the Green New Deal at its most radical sense. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. joined today by Billy Fleming, planner and director of the McCarg Center at the Weizmann School of Design at the University of Pennsylvania. Billy joins us today to discuss his work, research and advocacy for design and the Green New Deal. Billy, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Charles. It's really a pleasure to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Uh, over the past several years, you have been among the most uh, vocal uh, and effective advocates uh, on behalf of the role of design and planning in the construct of the Green New Deal. What should you share with our audience to begin with, to sort of begin a conversation about the Green New Deal? Sure. Uh, well, one, I appreciate that um, that kind of introduction because I'm not sure that that's true, but happy to take uh, that kind of credit. You know, I would say there are a few things to keep in mind when thinking about the Green New Deal, uh, particularly in this this kind of a context. One is just you know to remember there are many permutations or formulations of the Green New Deal, and there's a longer history to be told about the concept and the idea that stretches back, you know, at least into the mid 2000s, perhaps even long before. And those conversations are interesting. They're often also quite distinct from the GND as it's imagined today. And by that, I mean, you know, the Green New Deal, as we kind of understand it, as I understand, I'll stop using the royal we, as I understand it, I've tried to work on it, you know, through the center, through Penn, through some of the other kind of institutions that I, I interact with, uh, has really been to take the way it was formulated in 2019 through HR 109, the non-binding resolution that puts it kind of into public conversation for the first time, uh, seriously, and to take it at face value and to do that for lots of reasons. One is that, you know, that resolution is the product of years worth of organizing and advocacy by the climate justice movement and is as close an approximation to their demands at that time as we kind of have in the legislative record. And the second is that, you know, I was on the periphery of the construction of that resolution. Uh, many of the folks I, I met in climate and environment world during my time before Penn in the Obama administration were involved in the sort of formulation of that particular resolution, the campaign that came out around it. And so I think about it as the foundational document, the framework in which quite literally Representative Ocasio-Cortez in its introduction asked us all to think about it as a framework for collaboration, uh, the equivalent of a request for proposals, and to then think about how we might all use the different resources and power at our disposal to kind of fill in that framework with perhaps the, the vegan substitute for meat on the bones of the, the Green New Deal. And so if you think about what that resolution really does, it attempts, I think, for the first time in the U.S., or at least in American climate policy history, which is not a very long history, to try and fuse three really distinct pillars. Um, and those you know, are jobs or the sort of creation of, through industrial policy of new sectors of the economy that are low or no, or perhaps even negative carbon and contribute to things like the you know, renewable energy system, along with stewardship and maintenance and care work that itself might not always feel like climate work the same way that putting rooftop solar does, but nevertheless, is part of you know, what the construction of a low or no carbon economy has to look like. The second being you know, justice and the centering of frontline communities in the investment side of the Green New Deal. So thinking about 
you know, what places, which people are invested in first uh, and perhaps most in the rollout, imagining that something like a Green New Deal itself would never be, you know, a sort of single piece of legislation, even a single sort of presidential administration, but perhaps an era, uh, a way of defining a decade, two decades, three decades of policymaking. And so from that saying, you know, rather than saying, um, we'll deal with the hardest problems last to take them on first and to go to places like the Mississippi Delta, like Appalachia, like the Corn Belt, like some of the big um, sort of centers of disinvestment and depopulation and you know poverty and, and energy and climate injustice in the country and to, to work there first before worrying about the financial district of lower Manhattan, let's say. Um, so if you think about jobs and justice as those two core pillars, the third is then um, sort of built into them, which is decarbonization. And how do we think about fusing or grading the different streams of investment at the national or federal side to get us to you know, net zero or net negative carbon as fast as possible and to hopefully do it in ways that aren't uh, through the sort of you know, creative accounting measures that companies like Exxon and Comcast and all of our uh, you know, corporate overlord friends might want to do, uh, but to do it in ways that are real and tangible and don't rely upon you know, imagined or invisible or perhaps underperforming offsets um, often in the global south, but also in places like California, uh, that we know at least through recent accounting and audit studies are not doing the things that we were promised they would do. And so again, this is all part of this larger push to use things like industrial policy, like direct federal investment, like direct federal employment as levers for pulling us towards a just and low or no carbon future. And I say, you know, the Green New Deal is really the first, the first proposal to try and do that, to do those three things together um, because at least in recent memory, the closest we've come to passing anything resembling federal climate policy, have tried to pick one or two of those to really focus on. And the most obvious example of that is probably Waxman-Markey, the cap-and-trade bill from the early days of the Obama administration, 09 and 10. Uh, this is a proposal much like you know what has since passed in California and their statewide cap-and-trade bill, part of what was uh, passed in New York as part of their CLCPA, part of what has been under discussion in the state of Washington uh, and passed recently as well as state level cap and trade bill. But Waxman Markey as a cap and trade bill is really focused just on using regulatory pressure to drive down emissions in industry. It has no job creation components, it has no justice facing components, even in California, uh, where there is a sort of environmental justice set aside provision of their statewide cap and trade bill. We now know, again, from several years of the, after the implementation of that law, going back through to audit how and where those funds were spent, that you know the way that justice is defined and actualized and enacted in those kinds of cap-and-trade programs uh, relies more on, say, creative accounting than earnest investment in places that we might actually consider frontline communities. And so Waxman-Markey is really predicated upon just driving down emissions and setting aside these questions of decarbonization and job creation. And I think that's probably a good place to take the rest of our conversation from. The GND is the first to fuse these three pillars of jobs, justice, and decarbonization in a coherent program uh, offered up you know, not by technocrats, but by the climate justice movement. Before we get to your work at the McCarg Center and the role of design and planning, I want to just ask you if there are limitations to the framework of the New Deal. Clearly, this was in terms of, you know, the massive federal project of the 1930s. Well, part of what's uh, apt here is the is the plurality of the of the New Deal. It was many, many programs, many, many departments of government uh, across many, many years. And there's something about the ambition of that 
the scope of it being associated with uh, progressive uh, political ideals that cer certainly resonates today. Are there limitations to the use of that as a framework or are there ways in which we should not be looking at the New Deal as an historic uh, template? Sure, it's a, it's a really important question. It's one that I think thankfully set off kind of a renewed or a return to say the New Deal's various histories and legacies uh, this is part of, I think, the Green New Deal sort of bursting into public consciousness was both a recovery of some of the, the scholarship that was already out there on the New Deal and quite compelling and, and important. And I know it's also led to, you know, the creation of some new scholarship, which I'll probably chat about. But I think, you know, the obvious answer to this is, yes, of course, there are limitations to the New Deal. It was, a you know, like any sort of historical moment in any country's history, a, a contingent one, an imperfect one. And I think it's easy to think about it as, and it's often mythologized, kind of this heavy-handed, top-down, um, socialistic, and almost perhaps even authoritarian, you know, federal government intervention in a moment of crisis. And in actuality, it was both talked about at the time by FDR and remembered by uh, most careful historians as a plan to save capitalism from itself, and actually quite, uh, in a way, as a program uh, to prevent the, the rise of communism and socialism in the United States. And in that regard, was actually quite successful in doing so. And there are lots of things we should think about taking from the New Deal when it comes to, you know, the ability to build and exercise statecraft. But I'll, I'll kind of get to those after talking about its limitations. And I think that the limitations there are myriad. One is that as much as the New Deal is mythologized, again, as this sort of heavy-handed top-down program, in actuality, it, it, amounted to, it amounted to, you know, at times, little more than a mass transfer of federal funds to state and local government for implementation. And what that means is that, you know, FDR and his, his colleagues didn't think about the New Deal in ways that stretched beyond, say, political strategy. So they thought about it as a way to bring Southern Dixiecrats and Northern liberal Republicans and others together uh, around a particular shared economic program. What they didn't care so much about was upending uh, existing power structures in some of these places. So across the South, uh, where you know Southern Dixiecrats controlled basically every lever of government available to them, uh, those New Deal funds were used in many cases to lengthen and strengthen their political power and to simply reproduce power structures as it found them in place. And that meant, as you know, Brent Siebel and some colleagues have written about in a really fantastic volume called Shaped by the State, which is sort of a, a reassessment of 20th century liberalism and particularly of the New Deal and the Great Society uh, programs, but has looked at this, this tendency to reproduce rather than restructure power through programs like the New Deal uh, and to, to actually allow for things like Southern Jim, like Jim Crow Dixiecrats in the South and sewer socialists in cities like Minneapolis and Seattle to flourish simultaneously through the same shared program uh, of the New Deal. And to me, I think tells us a lot about how we have to think about both the way that, the, that federal money is actually controlled and strings are attached to it, and what a real theory of change for something like the Green New Deal could amount to. How might you think about the different levers of power that that kind of mass federal investment would uh, create, unlock, open up as a way to both uh, upend some of the worst parts about uh, American democracy and hopefully to then um, really invest in this idea of community self-determination and, and small-D democracy. And I think this focus on frontline communities gives us a real chance to think differently about the investment side of the Green New Deal that New Dealers thought about their own program. You know, the other is just that, obviously, we didn't know uh, much, if anything, about global climate change at the time the New Deal was rolled out. And so actually, many of its most interesting programs 
have incredibly high carbon legacies. And I think this is an area where, you know, there isn't say a one-to-one or even a, you know, anything approximating a one-to-one scale from uh, the New Deal's instruments to the Green New Deal's instruments. And I'm thinking in particular of agencies like the Rural Electrification Administration and the Civil Aeronautics Authority. And I'll talk about this more in just a second, but I think those two are, are interesting to me for lots of reasons. One is that they offer kind of an alternative built a natural environment, you know, set of programs or agencies to consider than the more, uh, I think, common examples or archetypes from the New Deal, which tend to be the Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, maybe the Civilian Conservation Corps. And it's easy to understand why those become the focus for folks, especially in the design community. The TVA, you know, is run by architects of landscape architects, and we love nothing more if not self-mythology, so why not focus on our own agency? Um, and the Civilian Conservation Corps, which, you know, is not run by designers, but is uh, creates uh, some of the most important works of American landscape architecture uh, that exist in this country, particularly from that period. And I think, you know, the TVA falls into many of the same traps as the Jim Crow Dixie Kratz uh, reproduction of power structure critique that I, I just sort of outlined a moment ago. And that in addition to creating this beautiful, sublime, multifunctional hydroelectric infrastructure that brings electricity to the rural South in Tennessee Valley, uh, it also operates as you know, one of the key instruments of Jim Crow, Dixiecrats in Tennessee and Alabama and Mississippi at the time, uh, allowing them both to cut black workers out of the construction project. Um, so you wind up with a very, very, very small fraction of black workers in the South who were eligible for TBA jobs actually getting them. Uh, it built and for a very long time maintained separate facilities for black and white visitors and workers at the sites. And then also, you know, for lots of pretty obvious reasons, um, set up its transmission infrastructure uh, implementation plan in ways that served white communities first and best and black communities worst and last. And so I think the TBA is one of the most overemphasized works of the New Deal in design culture and probably um, both deserves a bit of sort of reconsideration and perhaps a, a sort of secondary or tertiary status when we think about what the New Deal might offer. It's interesting to me, you know, in the two examples, the rural electrification and the um, Civil Aeronautics Authority, essentially decentralizing or devolving to states, municipalities, a combination of uh, both political autonomy, but equally economic resource, right? So these power centers, you know, I, I'm thinking of my own research on airports, for example, but I think the electrical systems are equally interesting in this regard, that they tended to reinforce a set of polities uh, as opposed to being instruments of reform in that regard. So I think this is a certainly a fascinating topic. I mean, you yourself are a landscape architect and planner. We want to talk about the role that design and planning might play. In April of 2019, you authored uh, one of the earliest and I thought most probative uh, pieces on this in Places Journal on the topic of design and the Green New Deal. And on the one hand, you know, the potential of this kind of massive federal project to decarbonize and address environmental justice questions and the role that design and planning might play. And I, I'm wondering if you could just for our audience, just give us the kind of um, the, the, the shape of that argument that you made in the in the Places Journal article. Sure. Well, I'll try to do that, but you can remind me because it feels like that was 20 years ago, even though it was just over two. You know, I, I think this is maybe where there's some connection from the New Deal to the Green New Deal to tease out a bit here. And I, I think just to maybe put like a period at the end of the New Deal conversation for now anyway, I think I often, coming into this work, thought of the New Deal as many things, but not as a built or natural environment project, per se, although it very much is that. Uh, I thought of the New Deal as giving us kind of our only universal program in this country, Social Security, 
uh, as being the kind of test run and the lead up to the World War II mobilization, which those two things, the boundaries are porous, they're sometimes conflated, but are quite distinct. And in actuality, you know, to my great benefit, got introduced to, to Richard or Dick Walker, who runs the Living New Deal program, uh, which is, you know, takes as its sort of core mission, this desire to go and catalog all of the physical projects uh, built through the various New Deal uh, agencies and, you know, have, have come to appreciate that they've been able to do that for about 100,000 or so projects now, some of which are quite heroic and like the ones we were just discussing, things like the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Appalachian Regional Trail, the Grand Coulee Dam, LaGuardia Airport, and sort of go on down the list. But the far, you know, greater total are, are some of those projects are the more quotidian ones, the ones that stitch together sort of everyday life. Uh, the sanitary sewer system is particularly west of the Mississippi. Nearly all of the state parks ever built and sort of planned in the history of this country. Uh, we get about 42% of all the, the transmission line ever built in the history of this country for electricity generation uh, is built through the New Deal. And so we went and there's, if you go on and on and on about all the things the New Deal delivered to the built the natural environment of the U.S. Um, but this is where I think for me sort of a switch began to flip when I began to think about what the Green New Deal might actually mean for how and where we live. Um, because I think it's easy to read HR 109 and, and see it as, you know, actually quite an eco-modernist, um, you know, proposal. It's very focused on technology, very focused on um, carbon molecules and electrons, um, even if it doesn't put them in quite those terms, and very focused on jobs, which are important, but not always thought about or even like necessarily considered uh, in spatial terms. Um, and so for me, began to think about you know, what the Green New Deal might mean for the built-in natural environment of a different generation. And that for us, for me and the center to think about how we might build our workout around a sort of share, a shared theory of change that, you know, says those carbon molecules in the atmosphere are important. Those electrons in your circuits that are powering this conversation are important, um, but we're never gonna walk outside of our house and notice like, a change in the density of carbon molecules, um, at least not viscerally. We're not going to power up our computers and just really know that it's powered by wind or solar or whatever instead of coal. Those things are important, but those aren't the things that help us help people comprehend and understand and perhaps eventually support a program like the Green New Deal. Those are the far more quotidian bits of infrastructure in the built environment. They're the, the homes we live in, the places we work, the ways we get between them, the schools we send our kids to if we have them, the parks we you know take our dogs to if we have them whatever it might be, those things that stitch together everyday life in communities large and small, coastal and inland, north and south, whatever it might be. And when you look at the sort of spread of projects built by the New Deal, and you see that they touch basically every community over, say, about a thousand or so people in this country, and in some ways that remain quite durable, uh, you know, the WPA built a football stadium at my alma mater, uh, the University of Arkansas, um, which people there, I think, have forgotten. Um, and I think, you know, for me, thinking about the Green New Deal is perhaps the next moment in this country's history when a very necessary and very powerful restructuring of, you know, those places, those communities, those infrastructures, the built and natural environments in ways that offer us an opportunity not just to drive benefits to the people who need them the most and have been asking for them for the longest, which certainly we can and should do, but I think also give us a chance to, to tell a different story about uh, the necessary power of the public sector to play a role in delivering, you know, improvements in quality of life and benefits to everyday life for everyday people. And that really has been, I think, kind of the springboard for all of the work that's come since out of the Green New Deal for me, for us in the center. And that piece in Places Journal, I think, begins to, to tease out some of those different threads we would take on, including just this question of where 
you know, the design profession sit in the larger ecosystem of professions and industries and, and other bits of the economy that will have some role to play in the build out of this new world that Green New Dealers would like to build. Uh, one of the interesting lines of thought in that piece that I want to draw you out on is the role of the landscape architect today. Uh, we've, in this space, um, had a conversation with uh, Alex Krieger, for example, who I think of as Dean of Urbanists uh, Working in America Today, just, just published his uh, book, kind of summing up a course he offered at Harvard College for many decades. He, among others, have argued that if he were to do his career again today, he would begin by becoming a landscape architect. You refer in the piece to industrial designer Dieter Rams as something saying something similar. And I think between you and I, we could enumerate at least a half a dozen other people, public figures prominent in, in their own fields who think of landscape now as a, a part of the solution, let's say. One quote that's gotten quite a lot of attention, I think rightly so, from that piece has you saying, if I have it correctly, I don't know when the myth of landscape architects as climate saviors began, but I know it's time to kill it. And in that regard, you touch on this notion of the work of landscape architecture as by definition good, green is good. And at the same moment, uh, you, I think very squarely in your argument, suggest that that is particularly problematic if we think about the role of design and planning going into the Green New Deal. For me, that bit of writing, much of the work that has come since uh, has really developed from this idea or this analysis, which is not novel, um, exists in you know many circles in architecture and certainly well outside of the built environment professions. And you know, when I get asked to talk about some of this work in, in interdisciplinary settings, I think the reaction is always to some of these analyses or critiques is like no shit. Um, like of course that's how professional industries work, uh, professional services industries work. Um, but for me, I think looking at what landscape architecture actually is and what it has the potential to be is really important. And what it actually is at the moment, in almost all cases, uh, is a fee-for-service, client-driven, mostly luxury products. And even in large uh, cities like New York, like San Francisco, like Chicago, like Miami, like all of the places where lots of our friends and colleagues work, uh, we are subject to the winds of capital. We go, design services go where capital flows. Uh, we have some ability to inflect those processes, I think, and deliver, you know, material improvements in some people's lives who might not otherwise get them. But for the most part, we are designing beautiful things for rich people. Uh, and I think that poses some real questions and real problems for us as we think about if and how we might try to align ourselves with what is a radically redistributive program if we take the Green New Deal at its sort of most radical, in its most radical sense. Um, and I think if we're to take it seriously, if we're to do it well, if we're to actually think about how we might alter the way we think and operate in the world, we have to do that. And for me, that means one of the luxuries of being at a place, of being at any academic institution, but especially being at one like Penn, is having the ability to think and operate outside of market forces. You know, I don't have to worry about the things that my friends at you know, Olin or Stoss or some of the other big and I think really laudable uh, design firms have to worry about. I'm not floating payroll. I'm not chasing clients. I'm not sending in, you know, RFP, RFQ submissions. And I think there are limits to how much of this stuff can be worked out in firms and limits to how much of it can be worked out in academia. And one of the things I think that's so exciting about the Green New Deal Super Studio project that's about to wrap up actually through LAF is that it's, it's starting to get both of those ends of the spectrum asking similar questions in their own way about how and where we might fit into this larger conversation. But I think for me, this is about a pretty basic understanding of the political economy of the built environment and how it's produced and where landscape architecture fits within that system of production. 
and how we might think about different alignments, different models of practice that allow us to create new political economies of new built environments. And that's going to require us, I think, breaking some of the ties we've built up over the years, um, or at least rethinking how much we invest ourselves in them with the folks who basically run and organize and implement our actually existing current built environments political economy. And that's mostly real estate developers, mostly finance, uh, mostly the sort of local and state electeds who are in many ways captured by those different systems. Um, because I don't think we can look back at the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years of landscape architectural or architectural or city planning work and come away with any conclusion other than we aren't doing much um, in terms of responding to either the climate crisis or, say, the climate justice crisis, the social justice crisis in this country. And that working through a fee-for-service client-driven model, even in the public realm, is not going to be um, the primary way through which the goals of the Green New Deal are achieved. It's going to require many different restructurings in the way that uh, the world works, including the way that landscape architects and architects and city planners are funded and allowed to operate. It's well put. And the claim that somehow, you know, landscape architects have taken market share back from both the urban arts, but also engineering, while maybe, you know, a, a tale within landscape architecture as a discipline or a profession that's well received, doesn't really bode well for building our way through the present configuration, the present political economy, a present uh, formation of capital. In that regard, I want to I want to turn to your work at the McCarg uh, Center. So you're the inaugural uh, director, the Wilkes family director of the McCarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania. And in, the, and in 2019, you, in fact, in that role, uh, in your journal article in Places, spoke to that very precisely, arguing that from where you sat in McCarg's former Department of Landscape Architecture, in a center bear, bearing his name on the 50th anniversary of the publication Design with Nature, that that rhetoric of the idea of landscape architecture as a savior it rings hollow. And in that sense, I wonder if there are any contradictions or conflicts in that regard between the academic mission that you're engaged in through the center uh, and that history or the notion of landscape architecture as a kind of central lens through which we might address questions of climate. It sometimes feels weird to think and say a, a bit of this stuff sitting where I sit at the place where I am. Um, I think there are a couple of things here that are important before I talk about maybe, you know, the way that we've tried to work on some of these Green New Deal questions, issues in the center. One is that, you know, I, I think there are there are things from Ian's, you know, legacy that are quite interesting and important for us to pull forward. I think there are lots of things we have to discard, including like the way he treated some of the people in his orbit. But I do think his willingness to have some of these bigger public conversations in ways that stretch landscape architecture outside of its comfort zone, outside of its, say, existing orthodoxy about what it was, how it should operate, what it should be, its role in society, those things are all hugely important. And, that, and they're things that didn't really didn't necessarily lose, but we haven't had the same megaphone for uh, over the last 20, 30 years. The other is that Ian was quite obviously quite interested in questions of how policy frames up the possibilities for design. And that's obviously been, you know, a, a big focus of my work here, often unintentionally. I think I never sat down to say, wow, how can I really like take Ian's honestly like quite wild book, Design in Nature, and try to translate it into the 21st century? But I think those are the things that coming up through the land grant system, the way that I did, I think some of Ian's ideas at least were still, you know, considered quite important. Those are the things that just sort of seep into the way that you that I think about and work uh, in this field. 
In the center, I think one of the things I've tried to do that's quite different from that legacy is to de-center landscape architecture in those conversations. You know, I've never had a lot of interest in uh, disciplinary power accumulation. I think some of that has happened, although not always in my own institution, but outside of it, which I think is a pretty common story in academia. You know, one of the things that Penn and the McCarthy Center can contribute to this larger conversation around the Green New Deal are resources and platforms and sort of institutional influence. And then, you know, to the extent that it matters, credibility or prestige in some of these more elite circles. And so for me, you know, that event, you mentioned the essay with Places Journal, the event that shortly followed it, Designing a Green New Deal, which we're going to do a reprise of, you and I, here in a couple of months uh, in Cambridge. You know, that event was really about saying, okay, let's take, you know, the folks across the disciplinary spectrums from political science to, you know, hardcore energy engineering to sociology to planning and landscape architecture and sort of everything outside and in between and ask some of these critical questions about what from the New Deal is worth carrying forward, what, what should we be discarding, what are the legacies here that we need to really contend with as we think about the Green New Deal, and then two, how do we think about, how should we be thinking about um, these really important questions of power structure and project implementation now and not after we've won a bunch of the sort of legislative victories we might need to win to enact and actualize the Green New Deal. And that kind of a conversation necessarily puts, you know, landscape architecture and architecture a bit more on the periphery than you might expect at a, you know, an event hosted by a design center. But to me, that's kind of where we belong. Other folks, activists, policy experts, elected officials have been, are, and will continue to lead those conversations. And I think the thing we can offer to them is an ability to think about space and aesthetic and form. Uh, in ways that aren't always obvious to folks whose primary you know, domains of expertise are aspatial and abstract and focused on economic policy, which obviously, again, is really important, but is not about, say, your lived experience every day in your home, your work, et cetera. And so I think, you know, if you look at all, you know, that event in particular, but certainly the, the other bits of research and work and other, other bits and bops that have come out of the center over the last couple of years, I think they've all tried to, at least the ones that are focused on the Green New Deal, I've all tried to sort of take take that sort of positionality that landscape architecture is actually not the most important, maybe not even all that important to this conversation, and to instead ask, how can we be useful to it? Um, how can we do something other than rebrand the work we're already doing as the Green New Deal and to actually ask some hard questions about what we should be doing differently to make ourselves useful to Green New Dealers? Well, you mentioned the both intellectual and, you know, professional imprint of McCarg and the, the global impact of that paradigm and way of seeing the world that is, that is still, still with us in many, in many respects. It strikes me that among the points of commonality, you know, the notion that, um, you know, Ian, Ian's project, among other things, was very comfortable with big government, right? It, it expected and depended upon the state in various forms as a kind of uh, mechanism uh, for a, an ecologically leavened uh, planning practice. At the same time, um, he was of his generation, he was of his era, and often would, you know, in addition to what you've said about the way that he operated in terms of his, let's say, leadership style, the McCargian agenda also expected that this was... Um, technical knowledge to be um, 
to be conveyed and imprinted through expertise and wasn't as often bogged down in consultation or asking communities what their preference might be. And I think in that regard, I'm, I'm interested to know your thoughts about whether or not landscape architecture and planning, are we in a better position to be able to engage with citizens? Or do you imagine through something like the Green New Deal that the citizenry is re represented through uh, elected and appointed officials and our role is really to advise those officials that on the one hand, so many of the failures of the New Deal era and on the progressive side, for lack of a better term, came through the, the kind of hubris of the design and planning fields, imposing what they thought to be technical solutions, uh, irrespective of the lived experiences and identities of those communities that were subject to those decisions. Yeah, I mean, this is such an important question. I think you know, there are a few, a few things to like keep in mind as we, we sort of wrestle with it because it's not probably an answerable one, certainly not, I think, in uh, the time we have left. But, you know, I think there are a few things to remember. One is that there's, a, there's an inherent tension in, I think, this idea that larger state, larger government can solve all of these problems. And I'm certainly a proponent of more money uh, from the federal government and in some cases far more authority and, and regulatory power and that's mostly to deal with some of our worst and most demonstrative industries like you know the fossil fuel industry, the prison industrial complex, and so on. But you know, looking through, say, the environmental justice, climate justice, scholarship, and advocacy world, and thinking about the work of folks like Miles Lennon, uh, Brown, Shalonda Baker, uh, formerly of Northeastern, on her way to Berkeley with a pit stop in the Biden administration, Theoria Francos, who's you know your colleague for the next year or so, I think, at the Radcliffe Institute up there. And um, a few others who, who work in this space around questions of energy democracy, energy justice, climate democracy, climate justice. I think it's important to just remember and to think through what it means for low and particularly low-income communities of color whose um, primary experience, if not only experience with the state, is one of violence and one of dispossession and commiseration. And so I think it's important to ask some, some questions about whether we actually think that, you know, simply you know, adding 50% to the size of government or the federal budget, whatever it might be, is going to really solve problems that are far more structural, far larger, far more imprinted into the DNA of this country um, than perhaps HR 109 wants us to believe. Speaking of the work of the center, uh, among the projects that's gotten quite a lot of visibility uh, recently has been the 2100 project, uh, an atlas for the Green New Deal. Uh, tell us about the origin of that project uh, and its reception. Sure. So, I mean, the origin itself is relatively simple. You know, it grew out of a, a series of conversations with a, a bunch of, of colleagues and comrades in the climate justice movement. You know, Rashini Prakash at Sunrise, of Theoria Francos, who does some work with us now in the Climate and Community Project that is based uh, just down the road from you at Providence College, and a few others, Daniel Donico and others kind of in that world. And came away from those conversations with kind of a, you know, a run, a run sheet of things we, we needed to be thinking about and doing. And one of those was you know, from Varsh and from some of the more climate or EJ focused groups, um, this idea that, you know, they had a, they have a, a huge constituency, lots of members, lots of hubs, lots of chapters around the country. Uh, those chapters are incredibly creative, innovative, are constantly looking for and practicing ways to pressure their local and, you know, federally elected officials to doing uh, more and better things around climate and environmental justice but often don't have access to some of the things that I certainly took for granted um, with an EDU email address, right? So most of the most, of the most important climate and built environment data uh, that we have, whether historical or contemporary or projective, 
um, tends to be either cloistered away behind paywalls that require you know, an EDU email address to access, um, or if they are open access, are just otherwise scattered across the internet and very, very hard to sort of take and use in ways that you can you know, find meaningful in your particular community. And so we took, uh, we took that bit of feedback, that, that part of the conversation from them as kind of a charge to put together what would become an Atlas for the Green New Deal as a way to collect and curate all of those, as much of that information as we could get in one place to contextualize it with a bit of the sort of backend information that would help people understand what it is they're looking at and how it might be useful. Um, and then to make it as you know, beautiful as we can, both one, because this is a, a school of design and also because we're asking people to look at 120 maps and you know that's a hard thing to do if they're not very attractive. Uh, local agricultural extension offices have been huge uh, viewers of this, um, you know, of this atlas. Um, we've seen a few rural electric co-ops in the South and Midwest do the same. Uh, have seen a number of local environmental justice and climate justice organizations that we don't know and had never heard of um, using it. And you can track a lot of this stuff, unfortunately, on Google Analytics. And then, you know, I think I've also seen it make the rounds in some humanities scholarship in favorable ways that I think also has been um, a bit surprising and, and quite flattering. You know, that project itself was born out of those conversations. It's been more impactful than we could have hoped uh, and actually has now let us uh, very, we're very close to finishing the kind of follow up to it, which is uh, an international version of it, um, quite different in many ways, but uh, was born out of a, a set of conversations with some of our international students here in the School of Design who um, came to me shortly after the Domestic Atlas was published, told me something to the effect of, this is cool, but, you know, it's only focused on the U.S. and not even all of the U.S. Um, and, you know, if you don't know this already, you should know it's a very small and relatively insignificant part of the world. So what about the rest of the planet? Uh, which was a very fair and I think important, you know, critique and conversation to have. And one that we knew going in, there were lots of reasons the, the, the Atlas for the Green New Deal is circumscribed the way that it is circumscribed. Um, but that project, which is now titled an internationalist, field notes towards an internationalist Green New Deal. Um, so less, I think, deterministic and Atlas focused, um, more workbook or field notes focused and I think quite ideological in its in its construction as a, as a you know a tool for internationalist Green New Deal solidarity. Billy, in the time that we've got remaining, tell us like what what are you and your colleagues working on the center now that we should be looking forward to beyond the internationalist edition of the Atlas? Yeah, there's there's a ton. Uh, it's going to be a really exciting year in the center. Uh, we now uh, through through the Stuart Weitzman gift to the school have been able to stand up four faculty working groups that are housed within the center. Uh, one of those is focused on climate policy. This is, uh, I've now been joined by Nick Kessner, one of our new tenure track faculty members. Nick's working on uh, a bunch of mine land and abandoned land, you know, related work that has to do with urban, natural urban sequestration strategies. So that climate policy group will have a bit more of its work up this fall. A second uh, working group led by Richard Weller and Karen McCloskey and is focused on biodiversity. We'll have a similar sort of body of work up there for folks to peruse uh, by, you know, certainly by the middle of the fall and hopefully sooner. It'll include things like Richard's, you know, Atlas for the End of the World, his Hotspot Cities project, some of the work that's on um, show now at the Venice Biennale. Uh, as well as Karen's, I think, really phenomenal work in the Galapagos, um, working with both the Ecuadorian Navy and a bunch of other uh, local environmental NGOs thinking about the future of one of the most important environmental uh, sites on the planet. And then a third group uh, called the Environmental Modeling Lab, or EMM Lab, led by Sean Burkholder and Keith Vandersis, uh, and joined by Karen McCloskey, 
which is really, I think their kind of um, wry way of talking about it is that they're just getting machines to talk to machines, which is true. But what they're actually doing, I think, is really building out the, the methodological and quantitative tool set or skill set um, that landscape architects need to be able to contribute to some of these more localized climate adaptation conversations. And so they have a, a new physical lab we've helped build for them, uh, Pennovation, which is the kind of off-campus experimental hub for the University of Pennsylvania, where a bunch of their work happens. Uh, but they've also been doing a bunch of kind of stealth on-call research for the Army Corps of Engineers around their um, nature-based strategies program or natural solutions program. So a bunch of that stuff will be up on the site. Um, and then the fourth group, you know, which is focused on the public realm, led by Chris Marcinkowski and Sonia Dumpelman, uh, is kind of just getting started. It was, um, you know, stood up really uh, as Sonia was uh, joining us here about a year, year and a half ago. Um, we'll also have the sort of first threads of their work up. So those kind of four groups, climate policy, biodiversity, uh, environmental, environmental modeling lab in the public realm will all kind of have, see their, their work showcased, hopefully in, in pretty compelling ways on the site this fall. And then the McBlog will continue, which has been such a fun sort of side project, which has been in many ways was brought to me by a now former student, but current student at the time, uh, James Andrew Billingsley, who would go on to be one of the, the kind of um, runners up for the, the annual Avery Review sort of junior editorial fellowship prize. Uh, James, one of the most, I think, interesting and compelling writers in our field. Uh, wrote a really phenomenal piece on there about apocalypse and landscape architecture um, that I re actually return to quite often. Uh, and it's been continued this year by Ian Dillon, which uh, Ian's you know filled it with content. There's been something like 20 posts or so this academic year. And we'll have a, a bit clearer sense of what it'll look like next year and the next month or so, but that'll obviously continue. And it's been a, a, really, a really lovely and I, I hope important forum for getting some more junior folks in the field, giving more junior folks in the field a venue in which to begin honing their writing, testing some of their ideas, and hopefully building a bit of an audience for some of their work too. Billy Fleming, thanks so very much. Thanks so much for having me, Charles. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.